Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Hebrews 11, verses 27 to 29. Alongside those verses from Hebrews, we'll also look back to various points in Exodus. So please, as always, keep your Bibles ready to follow along as we go. This morning, our attention will be on the Exodus. The word Exodus simply means a going out or a departure, usually of a large number of people. So when we refer to the Exodus of the Bible, what we're talking about is the departure of the people of Israel from Egypt, the significance of which within the scriptures simply cannot be overstated. The Exodus is the great event of the Old Testament that becomes the dominant New Testament paradigm for salvation in Jesus Christ. Our faith literally cannot be fully understood apart from the account of the exodus of Israel from Egypt. And verses 28 and 29 of Hebrews 11 refer to its two primary events, the Passover and the crossing of the Red Sea. And since this is Hebrews 11, what is the point? Well, the point, of course, is that the Passover and the crossing of the Red Sea both required faith. And specifically, what they required was faith's conviction. The conviction of faith that in spite of any circumstances or appearances to the contrary, God has made a way of salvation for his people. They need only trust and obey. That's where I hope this sermon is heading this morning. But it's obviously quite a jump from where we were last week to the principal events of the Exodus and we still have Hebrews chapter 11, verse 27 to deal with. So let's back up for a moment. It had been over 400 years since Jacob had taken his sons and their families to live in Egypt during a time of famine. Things had gone well at first, and the people of Israel had prospered, but as we saw last week, circumstances had changed. Long after Joseph and his brothers and all that generation had died, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. That Pharaoh feared the prosperous Israelites and enslaved them. Exodus 1 verse 13 says, The Egyptians ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. It was during that desperate time that Moses was born to a Levite couple. Last week, we considered the account of Moses' birth and of the miraculous way in which he came to be raised in Pharaoh's court and yet did not forget his suffering people. And so one day when Moses was 40 years old, he went out to visit his people. And there, being moved with compassion for them, Moses made a choice. Hebrews 11, verse 24, described that choice. It says, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. 
Only that didn't mean that Moses had decided to join his fellow Israelites as an Egyptian slave. No, it meant that he intended to carry out what he already understood was his God-given role to deliver his people from Egypt. And so Moses acted that day. Upon seeing an Egyptian slave driver beating a Hebrew, Moses took matters into his own hands. He killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Despite his efforts to conceal it, Moses' action became known. And the next day, two quarreling Hebrews refused Moses' intervention in their dispute. Who made you a prince and a judge over us? One of them said. Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? They did not accept Moses as their leader. Rather, Moses' action the previous day had undermined any claim to leadership among his people. Then Moses was afraid. Exodus 2 verse 14 says, He thought, surely the thing is known. His own people knew it and rejected Moses. But there was more. Exodus, 1 verse, Exodus 2 verse 15 says, When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. That was where we left things last week. The fact that Moses had made a mistake in killing the Egyptians seems evident, for this would not be the way God would have him deliver his people. His people now wanted nothing to do with Moses. No, it was not yet the time, and Moses had much to learn. And now to make matters worse, Pharaoh wanted him dead. Remaining in Egypt was no longer an option, and so he fled, Exodus says, and stayed in the land of Midian. And on one level, it would, of course, be right to say that Moses fled because Moses was afraid. He knew his own people had rejected him, and he knew Pharaoh would have him killed if he stayed. Only it seems Moses' understandable fear in that moment wasn't ultimately what was driving him at that point. At least not if Hebrews 11, verse 27, the first verse of our text this morning, is to be believed. There we read in Hebrews 11, verse 27, By faith Moses left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Which presents a significant interpretive challenge, doesn't it? For how can the pastor writing Hebrews say Moses was not afraid when he left Egypt, even as Exodus explicitly states Moses was afraid? Now, I'll admit the solution to this isn't obvious. In fact, some scholars and commentators hypothesize that the reference here in Hebrews 11 to Moses leaving Egypt is not a reference to Moses' departure at this point in his life at all, but rather is sort of a, a way of summarizing Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt much later in the Exodus itself. 
But that interpretation has its challenges too. And so I think that despite the difficulty of reconciling Hebrews 11 verse 27 with the account in Exodus chapter 2 verses 14 and 15, we do need to try. And I think the key may be in the last part of this verse in Hebrews. Notice that the pastor describes Moses as leaving Egypt, not precisely as fleeing it. And then notice how in the end of the verse, the pastor explains how it was that Moses left Egypt by faith. And what the pastor says is, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He persevered, in other words. Only if the point is merely to do with Moses' initial flight from Egypt, then that terminology seems strange. Because whatever the pastor is talking about in verse 27, it seems it takes place over a long period of time. And so what I think is happening here is that the pastor isn't so much focused on the moment that Moses left Egypt, but rather on the lengthy time that Moses would remain away from Egypt. The pastor seems to clarify for us that Moses did not stay away all that time because he was afraid of the anger of the king, you see. It seems to me the point may be that Moses' faith is what kept him going as he left Egypt and went into what would be a 40-year period of waiting on the Lord. Perhaps the point is that while Moses did express fear when he knew his violent action had become public knowledge and Moses did flee from Pharaoh because of it, by faith, Moses overcame his fear of reprisals and left Egypt for good, if you will, or at least for however long it would be until the Lord's timing for him became abundantly clear. And if that's right, then fundamentally what motivated Moses as he went into the next phase of his life wasn't fear, but faith in the God who had promised the deliverance of his people. Moses surely knew that God had promised that first to Abraham, a promise that had been remembered by the patriarchs, including Joseph, as we saw a few weeks ago. As he fled Egypt, Moses no doubt saw that his own rash attempt to deliver God's people had fallen woefully short. And so he would begin a season of waiting. He would endure as seeing him who is invisible, as the end of verse 27 says. His leaving Egypt for 40 years in the desert would require of him an enduring faith motivated by faith's vision of God. Acts 7 verse 23 tells us it was 40 years in all. And I rather doubt Moses expected it would be that long. One author imagines that initially the change of scenery might have been refreshing, but 10 years and advancing age would have tried Moses' faith. As the 10 years turned to 20, and then 30, and finally 40, his confidence must have drained away. His sense of calling 
all but vanished into a dim, if not bitter, memory. Yet God was working with a purpose in Moses' life until the time had come for him to go back. When he fled Egypt, Moses began his apprenticeship in spiritual leadership. He had spent his first 40 years becoming a somebody. He would spend his second 40 years becoming a nobody. And then God could use him. It was an apprenticeship in faith. Well, many of you know what then happened Forty years later, Exodus chapter 3 recounts the day Moses heard the voice of the Lord from the burning bush. He who had left Egypt so long ago was now being called to return as Israel's deliverer. And this time Moses was reluctant. But when he did go back, it would be with the knowledge that his leadership must be marked by faith. For it was faith that had given him endurance for those long and difficult years. That faith would be on powerful display in Exodus chapters 4 through 10, as Moses boldly confronted Egypt's king and delivered plague after plague from the Lord against Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. And still Pharaoh refused to let God's people go. And so in Exodus chapter 11, Moses speaks of the tenth and final plague on the firstborn. In Exodus chapter 11, verse 1, we read, The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward he will let you go from here. About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. The Lord would have victory over Pharaoh and over the gods of Egypt, and when he did, God's people would be set free. The exodus would be underway. But there was something different about this final plague. Whereas the previous nine plagues had left the people of Israel unscathed because God had made a distinction between his people and Pharaoh's, this time that would not be the case. This time, like the Egyptians, the Israelites were under a sentence of death. The same night that God brought death to every house in Egypt, God would also visit the home of every Israelite with the purpose of killing their firstborn sons. Note how the pastor writing Hebrews draws attention to that fact in verse 28 of Hebrews chapter 11. He says, By faith Moses kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. And you see the them there is Israel, the people of God. The language the pastor uses here concerning the destroyer of the firstborn is taken directly from the Greek version of Exodus 12 verse 23 
but you can hear it in the ESV translation just as well. Exodus 12, verse 23, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. The judgment that was to fall on the Egyptians would not be limited to the Egyptians. The implication is that had God not provided a means for their salvation, the Israelites would have suffered the loss of their firstborn sons as well. Why? Because as I read it, the 10th plague was a sign of God's judgment against all humanity. And the Israelites were sinners too. We ought not to imagine that the people of Israel were all living faithfully as followers of Yahweh over the 400 years that they were in Egypt. In fact, we know that's not the case. During their long centuries of captivity, the Israelites grew to love the gods of Egypt. Many of them were guilty of idolatry. Much later, when it was time for the renewal of the covenant at Shechem, Joshua said in Joshua chapter 24, verse 14, Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Dear friends, we must not think that the Egyptians deserved the judgment of the 10th plague, but that the Israelites didn't. No. The avenging angel visited the Israelites because like the Egyptians, they too were sinners. The wages of sin is death, Paul states in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. And that night, Israel was to understand that their lives were forfeit to God on account of their sin, just like the Egyptians. One Old Testament scholar puts it this way, when the wrath of God is applied in its essential reality, no one is safe. There were two nations in the land of Egypt, but they were both resistant to the word of God. And if God comes in judgment, none will escape. Or at least, none will escape unless God himself provides the way of escape, you see. Because what did it mean for Moses to keep the Passover and sprinkle the blood, as Hebrews 11 verse 28 says he did by faith? Where did Moses get that idea? Well, it was from the Lord himself, of course. Because in his mercy, God provided his people with a way to be safe in the face of this judgment. In the end, the reason the Lord would visit their homes that night wasn't, in fact, to destroy them, but to teach them about sin and salvation. Like the Egyptians, the Israelites deserved divine judgment. 
unlike the Egyptians. They would be saved by grace through faith, just as we must be. Now, they're familiar words, I realize, but I'd like you still to listen to certain parts of Exodus chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Exodus 12, going to verse 3, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Verse 5, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Verse 11, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. And it's exactly what Moses did. The language that the pastor uses in Hebrews chapter 11 can be understood to mean that Moses didn't just keep that first Passover, Moses instituted the Passover precisely as the Lord commanded him. And look at, though the pastor says Moses kept the Passover by faith, what that means in this context, of course, is that Moses commanded all the people to keep it, and they did. Exodus 12, verse 21, Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. And what does it say then in Exodus 12, verse 28, just before you read about the Lord coming at midnight to strike down the firstborn in Egypt, Exodus 12, verse 28, then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. It was by faith. Moses and Israel so believed God that they obeyed God's instructions to the letter. As one commentator observes, the instructions were strange, the demands costly, and the ritual unprecedented. But they did precisely as they were told. In simple faith, they kept the Passover. They relied on the God who had spoken to them through his servant. Brothers and sisters, in salvation, God gives what God demands. 
Moses believed the word of the Lord and the people followed the instructions he provided. And as a result, Moses and his people were saved. And we can't go into all the details of the Passover meal, many of which we skipped over when I read parts of chapter 12. The unleavened bread, the bitter herbs, the eating with sandals on and staff in hand. It's all important. But the pastor writing Hebrews is focused on the most important aspect of the whole thing, and that's the blood. By faith, Moses kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, Hebrews says. Only one might take issue with sprinkled because there's blood spilling all over Exodus chapter 12. The Israelites were to slaughter their lambs and put the blood in a basin. Then they were to take that blood and paint it on their door frames. And why was that? Well, let me direct your attention once more to verse 13 of Exodus chapter 12. The Lord said in verse 13, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. The blood, of course, represented the taking of a life. And note that it was called a sign. And note also that it was a sign both to the Israelites and to the Lord, right? God said the blood shall be a sign for you. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. To the Lord, the blood signified that a death had already occurred that a penalty had already been executed. Seeing the blood from outside the house, God would therefore turn away the avenging angel. To the Israelites, the blood signified that they had a substitute. A lamb had died in their place. Though their sin was worthy of death, and though the Lord was coming that very night in judgment, Seeing the blood from inside the house, they knew they were covered. They trusted this word from the Lord. That's faith's conviction, brothers and sisters, that God has made a way of salvation for his people. They need only trust and obey. And I do not know how well Moses and the people perceived the significance of that first Passover, even as they obeyed the Lord's instructions. But I can't help but think it would have occurred to the Israelites that the actual blood of a helpless animal spread on their doorframe was not in actual fact what was protecting them from the Lord's judgment. The blood of the lamb on the doorframe was, after all, a sign. A sign that pointed to the true protection they needed against the Lord's judgment. Over the centuries, this Passover sacrifice would be repeated millions of times. Yet not even the blood of all those animals could atone for sin. For as Hebrews 10 verse 4 makes perfectly clear, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. What would be needed was a more efficacious sacrifice. The offering of a more precious blood. 
As one commentator puts it, it was the eyes of faith that saw another greater sacrifice, one that is necessary because of our sin and that protects us forever from the holy wrath of God. Regardless of how well Moses' generation understood the full meaning of the Passover lamb, the connection would have been crystal clear to the original readers of Hebrews. To them and to us, the point must be made that we must be saved the same way Moses and the people were. If we want to escape the death that God's judgment brings, then like the ancient Israelites, we must be found secure under the blood, the blood of Christ, our Passover lamb, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7. As the ancient Israelites looked up to the blood on their doorframes, so do we look up to the cross. There we see that a lamb has died in our place. Though our sin be worthy of death and the Lord coming in judgment, like the Israelites that first Passover night, we know we're covered. For when God looks down at the cross, he sees that it's stained with the blood of his very own son. There is no more precious blood than that in all the universe. And when God sees it, he says, it is enough. The price for sin is fully paid. Death will pass over you and you will be safe forever. Dear friends, the only way to be saved from sin and delivered from death is by Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. For as John Chrysostom once proclaimed, if the blood of a lamb then preserved the Jews unhurt in the midst of the Egyptians and in the presence of so great a destruction, much more will the blood of Christ save us for whom it has been sprinkled not on our doorposts, door but in our souls. For even now the destroyer is still moving around in the depth of night, but let us be armed with Christ's sacrifice. Since God has brought us out of Egypt from darkness and from idolatry. Well, if the Passover marked the beginning of the exodus of God's people, it would be the crossing of the Red Sea that was its climactic conclusion. And so we come to verse 29 of Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Now David read the account from Exodus chapter 14 for us earlier in the service. We do not have time to cover all of it. After the plague of the firstborn, Pharaoh and all the Egyptians insisted on Israel's departure. They even supplied Israel with great riches for their journey. The Lord himself then led the people around the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, Exodus 13 verse 18 tells us. Verse 21 describes how that was so. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. Only to 
the eventual shock of the Israelites, we find out in Exodus 14 that God was not yet finished with the Egyptians. The Lord instructed Moses to have the people turn back and encamp by the sea. Doing so would leave them vulnerable to Pharaoh and the Egyptian army, but that was the whole point. Believing the Israelites to be trapped, Pharaoh saw his chance. Exodus 14, verse 8, And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Egypt, while the people of, the people of Israel, while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them and overtook them and camped at the sea. Pursuing the Israelites was the world's most powerful army that had the world's most advanced military technology, the chariot. And thus trapped between Pharaoh and the sea, all the people of Israel could see was their brutal end. They fully expected to be destroyed. They cried out to the Lord, verse 10 tells us, but they didn't wait for an answer. They immediately turned on Moses. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Well, we certainly can understand their fear. This was not the response of faith. Listen to how the psalmist captures this very moment in Psalm 106, verse 7. There, the psalmist says, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Indeed, they did. And it would be an ominous sign of things to come for this generation in the days ahead. But this was the moment when God would bring glory to his name. And for that purpose, the people were exactly where God wanted them to be. Moses rebuked them in verse 13. Fear not, he said. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. You see, Moses, at least, had learned that God's promise to deliver his people was certain of success. And so it was by faith that he exhorted the people and God rewarded Moses with this response beginning in verse 15. Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And so it happened. Once again, Moses trusted the word of the Lord and gave instructions to the people. Seeing then the salvation of the Lord, verse 29 says, the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall on their right hand 
and on their left. God had delivered them once again. At the sight of the divided waters, the people went forward. And according to Hebrews 11, verse 29, they did it by faith. But brothers and sisters, notice the order of things here. God didn't wait for the Israelites to trust in him before he would save them. I think the narrative in Exodus chapter 14 shows us that had God waited for that to happen, they would never have been saved. Instead, God took the initiative. He made a way of salvation for his people, and the people saw it just as Moses said they would. As one author puts it, the deliverance that had been procured for them could be appropriated only through the response of faith. This is the pattern of salvation. First, God delivers us from danger, saving us when we cannot save ourselves. Then we respond in faith, trusting God and worshiping him. And dear friends, the point is the same for us today. There is a way of salvation. And the Lord has shown it to us. The scriptures say we have been saved from our bondage to sin through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As his crucifixion drew near, Jesus himself described his death as an exodus in Luke chapter 9, verse 31. Not because Jesus needed to be delivered from sin, but because we do. Paul writes in Romans 5, verse 8, that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. As it was in the first exodus, so it is in the second. God has made a way of salvation, and God's saving work comes first. We are then called to respond in faith. When the Israelites saw what God had done for them, they put their trust in him. They crossed the sea on dry ground. God calls us to do the same. He calls us to see Jesus Christ crucified and risen and to believe in him. For as Jesus himself says in John chapter 5, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Is this the conviction of your faith? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.